Okay, guys. Let's do it. Today's Lunch and Learn. Do we bring the best out of each other? It's obviously about relationships. The concept here is that the beauty of a relationship is when we bring the best out of each other. So the questions here is, do I bring the best out of him or her, whichever is the significant other? And the second question, an important question, do I let the other bring the best out of me? Okay? So while most of us will focus on the first question, I want to clearly tell you we're going to go into a journey that's going to really embrace the second question. Okay? Let's do it. The mathematics of relationships. The mathematics of relationships really is funny. Relation makes relationships create funny mathematics. Most of us love the mathematical equation of 1 plus 1 equals 1. It's romantic. It sounds beautiful. It lets us know that we're not two separate people. We're really one people. That's the gift of a marriage. Um, by the way, whenever I get into a situation where the boy who's... Uh, doing his foot dance, you know, what's a piece of paper, it's okay, we love each other. Normally that's my answer. My answer is that without a chuppah, two human beings can only be two separate people. It takes a chuppah to defy that and turn one plus one equals one. Humans can't do that. We can play house, we can be partners, we can do everything appropriately, but what we can't do is to create the one plus one equals one. Shalom, shalom people. <laughs> Thank you, Maria. Yeah. Okay. So with that, that being said, the original equation of relationships that people think of, people like to talk about is 1 plus 1 equals 1. I will tell you that that actually has its sources in the Talmud. Before we get into the mystical side of it, it has a source in the Talmud. The Talmud says that 40 days before the formation of the child, what happens? The two souls sit together. Bef then another statement in the Talmud, that before one soul comes down into this world, the heavenly voice rings out that this and this soul will be married to this and this soul. So if you think about the concept and many teachings in, in the Talmud I mentioned to you, not even getting yet into the Zohar and Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, you will find that specific equation is true. One plus one equals one. It's the secret of relationships. On the other hand, I will tell you that while it's a very romantic equation, it's not a very economical equation. Because now you think about what that means. 1 plus 1 equals 1 means that we're now having double the investment and half the returns. 1 plus 1 equals 1. That means that now you have double 1s going into the equation and all you're taking out of it is 1. Which literally means that each one gets a half. So I will share with you that while it's a beautiful, Talmudic, Kabbalistic, romantic statement, Relationships is 1 plus 1 equals 1. Nevertheless, I will tell you it's economically challenged. Why would we put so much investment for only half the return of what we had prior? And it's really true. You realize when two people get together, there's double the investment, double the baggage. We have more issues on the table. 
So the 1 plus 1 equals 1. For right now, I'm going to say it's romantically beautiful. It's investment-wise, we need to know if that's logical. Now I want to share with you a second mathematical equation for a relationship. This one comes from Rashi. Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki. Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki lived in the 11th century. He lived in France. He is the most classical commentary on the Bible, on Torah. When you learn with a child, Chomish, you want him to know the simple interpretation, you turn to Rashi. When you get older, and now you're getting confused from all the other knowledge you have, you want to go back to what does the simple verse mean, you turn to Rashi. Rashi teaches us a very interesting mathematical equation for relationships. And what is that? What that is, he talks about the spies. The stories of the spies, Moses sends 12 spies to Israel and they bring back produce, right? They bring back the special fruits. You have, they brought back the grapes. We all sort of picture, we all know that they're carrying back produce from Israel. Rashi tells us how it worked. For whatever reason, Rashi here decides to teach us about relationships. And he says as follows. If one person, I'm making the number of 75 pounds, obviously Rashi wasn't talking that language, but this is exactly what he says. If one person can carry 75 pounds, two people together can carry 225 pounds. Let's work out the mathematical equation. 1 plus 1 equals 3. Rashi says that when two people line up as a partnership, not only can they now carry the sum total of the individual power of Mr. A and the individual power of Mrs. A, but when Mr. A and Mrs. A get together, they now have the sum total of three. Rashi introduces us now to a new mathematical equations for relationships. One plus one equals three. So now we're dealing with a new equation for relationships that will actually be more economically, investment-wise, logical. So while we don't have the romantic, lovey-dovey beauty of 1 plus 1 equals 1, but we do have the economical logic of now I understand why we should invest so much into our relationships. Because if we do it right, we are not just the sum total of all its individual parts. But the beauty of a relationship is that one plus one equals three. The sum total of this relationship is far greater than the sum total of its individual parts. So thus we have a question on the table. What is a beautiful relationship? Is it the romantic one plus one equals one? Or is it the more investment logical one plus one equals three? So the relationships of mathematics is funny. It really makes for funny mathematics. So I share with you the story, the way rabbis love to answer questions. You're right, you're right, and you're also right. I'm going to suggest to you that the two are not arguing. I'm going to suggest to you that the statement of 1 plus 1 equals 1 and the statement of 1 plus 1 equals 3 are not differing in opinion. 
they're actually based upon each other. Okay? So let's talk about what 1 plus 1 equals 1 would mean. 1 plus 1 equals 1 would mean that there is the individual 1, Mr. A. There is the individual 1, Mrs. A. And then there is the equal 1. Who is that equal 1? When we want to romanticize, what we're picturing is like the pre-separation of Adam and Eve, they were truly one being. So the one, the sum total one, would mean what? It would mean that it's Mr. A, Mrs. A, together become one. I'm going to suggest to you that's not what this equation is saying. What I'm going to suggest to you today is that when you hear in Judaism that marriage is one plus one equals one, what we're actually saying is that Mr. A is a complete one before he gets married. Mrs. A is a complete one before she gets married. They're two very competent and complete human beings. But what happens when one plus one gets together, then the original one takes on a total new dimension. Because the job of a marriage is, or relationship is, a beautiful, perfect relationship is, that one plus one takes each individual one to a total new dimension, unprecedented, prior to a relationship. So when we say one plus one equals one, that latter sum total one doesn't mean combine Mr. A and Mrs. A. What it means is that through the marriage, the number one of Mr. A takes on a total new unprecedented dimension of the capacity of Mr. A. And through the marriage, Mrs. A, she now takes on a total new unprecedented dimension of being one. So one plus one equals one is not looking at the marriage where the two are totaled up together. It's telling you about how beautiful and a perfect relationship does to each one of the equation. Mr. One becomes a whole new unprecedented Mr. One. Mrs. One becomes a whole new unprecedented Mrs. One. Thus we understand that 1 plus 1 equals 1 and 1 plus 1 equals 3 is really synonymous. Because Rashi is saying the exact same thing. Rashi is saying, Mr. One can only have the capacity of his own to carry 75 pounds. Mrs. One, on her own, only has the capacity of carrying 75 pounds. But when Mr. One and Mrs. One enter in a true, perfect relationship, then each one of them no more equal their previous one. Because if you take 225 and you divide it into 2, you don't have 75 and 75. So what we're sharing here is in a real marriage, when 1 plus 1 equals 1, that is how we experience 1 plus 1 equals 3. Thus, a deeper look into the Jewish teachings of marriage, from Rashi and from the Talmudic statements, will tell us that the real power of marriage, of any true relationship, 
is all about when one brings the best out of the other. And therefore, that individual, Mr. A, and that individual, Mrs. A, through marriage, become individually both far greater than they've ever been alone. That is the goal of a true relationship. Relationships become very painful when I start asking myself, why am I still involved with this relationship? I'm dealing with extra baggage. That's the exact antithesis of what we're saying now. 1 plus 1 equals 0.5. Thus understand what we're learning here is that the true definition of a marriage, the true definition of a relationship is 1 plus 1 equals 1. Meaning that they each become a total unprecedented 1. Thus we now understand 1 plus 1 equals 3. Thus we have the title of our lecture today. Do we bring the best out of each other? The beauty of a relationship is when we bring the best out of each other. Do I bring the best out of him? Do I let him bring the best out of me? Okay? So, we now understand in way of introduction what is going on here. I want to just share with you a story because, as you know, when Hasidim are struggling to articulate in explanatory words a concept, we usually just tell a story. So I want to share with you a story. There was a Poritz. I don't know if you're familiar with what a Poritz is. A Poritz is a landowner. In the olden days, there was one person um, under the Tsar, whoever he was, he literally owned land, and he was the governor of his land. If you didn't pay rent, he just threw you into a ditch, and that's it. You died there. It, was, it wasn't, they were very powerful, the landowners. Now, what happened was that this landowner had a wagon with six powerful, magnificent horses. No, one day this poet, he's traveling with his wan with his wagon and his six horses, and he ends up in a mud hole. His driver, his wagon driver, is snapping the whip on this back, on that back. The horses aren't getting it out. Try as he may, the horses are not getting the wagon out of the ditch, out of the mud hole. No. Now into the scene, introduce Yankala with his old wagon, two undernourished horses, and they come around the bend, boom, right into the mud hole. The pirate smiles. If my six well-fed, magnificent horses, beautiful beasts, cannot get me out of this mud hole, what's that Jew going to do with his two undernourished horses? In total amazement, he watches as Yankala cracks the whip in the air once, twice, three times, and the two horses right out of the mud hole. He doesn't understand this. He says, sir, Jew, stop for a moment. I need to ask you a question. How did your two undernourished horses perform what, what, what my six magnificent horses could not perform? I'm hitting them. It doesn't work. You didn't even hit them. You just cracked the whip in the two. Look at them. Malnutrition. What happens? He says, you want the answer? I'll tell you the answer. It says like this. Your six horses, where are they coming from? Probably two of them come from Egypt. One comes from India. Another one comes from Arabia. 
You got beautiful horses here. You put together the dream team. But what happens is that when you hit one of the horses on the back, that horse gives a pull. The other five horses just look up to Hashem. Thank God it wasn't my back this time. Let me tell you about my two horses. They were born in the same barn. They grew up together. They played together. When I crack the whip and each horse does not feel it on its own back, it cannot bear the pain of knowing that his friend just got hurt. So both of them work together and that's how my two undernourished horses got me out of here and your six magnificent beasts could not get you out. You understand now one plus one equals one, one plus one equals three? By not hitting any of the horses, allowing each friend, each partner to believe that his friend is being put in pain, all of a sudden each one of them joined forces where through their love they've now created that each individual reaches a new dimension of unprecedented inner strength. Thus the true relationship is where each one brings the best out of each other. They both individually reach new heights and thus together they're in a total new sum total. One plus one equals three. So now we understand where this is going. We need to understand now the process. Do we bring the best out of each other? I've shared with you more than once already in these last couple of minutes the, dual, the dualism of the question. Do I bring the best out of my significant other? And do I allow my significant other to bring the best out of me? Notice that I reworded the second question. Let's go there. Guys, in order to understand this, I need to pose one more question on relationships, which really is going to introduce a total new mathematical equation to relationships. The question goes like this. If we are meant to be together, why are we so different? That's a question that goes through every relationship. Now let's talk about what we mean by different, okay? Let's just start in the simplistic point of different. Male, female, different. Yin, yang, different. Kabbalistically speaking, Chachma, Bina, wisdom, understanding, feminine, masculine, different. Za, Malchus, once again, masculine emotions, feminine emotions. That's just speaking on the genetic level. Physically, spiritually, and metaphysically. Now let's get to not genetics. Let's talk about personalities. Let's talk about environmental. Let's talk about upbringing. It's very simple. You have two people, different countries, different upbringings. You understand how difficult it is to stay in a marriage. So if God meant us to be together, each one of us with our significant other, why did he create us so different? Genetically, environmentally, upbringing, personality. I love the, uh, you ever mentioned to someone, wow, I never thought they'd be together. 
What's the regular answer? Opposite attracts until uh, the first fight. <laughs> but yeah, we love that saying, opposite attracts. Why? Why did God make us so different when we're meant to be in the deepest relationship of all? One plus one equals one. One plus one equals three. So I don't have my PowerPoint, so I made a little prop over here. Let me tell you what is introduced by what I just told you. A new mathematical equation. Yeah, you're trying to read that word? Think about the last time you really got frustrated. One plus one equals frustration, which equals a over 50% divorce rate. A whole new mathematical equation into the picture. To understand why God made us so different and then with a smirk on his holy face said to us, make it work. We need to discuss a Kabbalistic concept. You guys have been here before. Most of you, you know. We're going to detour now. We're going to get supernal. We're going to talk about the way it reflects itself in the spiritual, supernal world. And then we'll come back for a landing, hopefully. So, let's do it. I want to introduce you to you a very interesting teaching in Genesis. Before God created this world, He created and destroyed worlds. That's what it says. The great Rabbi Isaac Luria, known as the Ariya Kadosh, any of you who went to visit Sfat, you must have been by his tomb. He also has this famous mikvah where there is a teaching that if you go to his mikvah, you don't die without first doing teshuva. It's a freezing well water. But either way, this man lived a very short life physically, but he completely changed Kabbalah as we know it. We now refer to the Luriac Kabbalah, Rabbi Isaac Luria. Hasidus is based mostly on the Luriac teachings of Kabbalah. His twist on symptom, contraction, all these big words you hear, when we deal with it, we usually deal with it through the Rabbi Isaac Luria, the Ariya Kadosh's set of eyes, holy eyes. He defines this teaching as follows. God created worlds and destroyed worlds before he created this world. Parenthetically speaking, on a total different lecture, we can talk about the why. Just that you don't wonder why God did that. I want to share with you that in Hasidus it explains that that is a necessary process and link in the evolution from the infinite to the finite. So it's not like God built it, changed his mind, destroyed it. It had to be built, it had to be destroyed so that we can reach to where we're going now. Okay? But with that being the case, what is this world? The great Raya Kadosh says, it is the world of Tohu. You have it in the opening of Genesis. Before creation, what was there? Va'aretz Haita Tohu Uvahu. Tohu. Tohu, literally translated loosely, is chaos. What is Tohu? Tohu was a world in which, we're going to talk about this now, Torah was a world in which the intensity of each of the emanations, we'll talk about that in a moment, caused it to shatter. Where did the pieces of the shattered vessels fall into? They fell into the physical 
physicality of our world. Thus, you're going to have in Kabbalah the famous teaching, there are 288 sparks of Tohu which fell into this world. And now our job is, by using physical to perform spiritual, simply speaking, by doing physical mitzvot, godly commandments, through that we release and elevate the divine spark of Tohu which fell into this world. Interesting question. Tohu is stronger than Tikkun. This world that we exist in is called in Kabbalah Tikkun. The simple definition of Tikkun means orderly. Chaos is far more intense and powerful than orderly. The orderliness is not as powerful. Question then, why did Tohu shatter and why did Tikkun prevail? To understand this, we need to understand what went wrong with Tohu. So let me share with you what went wrong with Tohu. What happens is that every single world, we went through this in previous lectures, is made up of ten sfirot, ten emanations. You know them as three intellects and seven emotions. Wisdom, understanding, knowledge are the three intellects. They represent actually the three lobes. You'll notice that your right lobe is more artistic, wisdom. Your left lobe is more methodological. It's understanding, and then you have the stem, which is job is to take the intellect and draw it down to the emotions and the rest of the body. And then the emotions are also divided into right, left, and center, two trinities. You have kindness, strictness, and compassion, and then under that you have the next, which is netzachot yisod, and under that you have malchot, and I'm going to stick to just those words. Let's get back to what we need to talk about. So the evolution of every single world from a spiritual dimension is the ten emanations, the Svirot. When God said, let us create mankind in our image and likeness, God has no image, God has no likeness. So what does he mean? The teachings of Kabbalah tells us that what he means is that the human infrastructure reflects the infrastructure of spirituality, which is ten emanations, which we call ten sfirot. Now let me tell you the problem with this. The problem is that these ten emanations have within them dichotomies, kindness and strictness. They're antithetical to each other. They're exact opposites. Now what happens is that when you have kindness and strictness, in the same batch, kindness is, you know, you know how it works, right? When you have the neighbor who doesn't look like you, doesn't smell like you, all of a sudden you put up this big 18-foot hedge to make sure we don't see him, he doesn't see us. We don't want to get along. You take your stuff, we take my stuff. When we go out to take out the garbage, we meet each other, we say hi, but you go your place. We're not fighting, but we're just very different, you understand. Now, when that happens in the spiritual worlds, kindness and strictness tell each other, hey, guys, you got your side of the corner, I got my side of the corner, but we, we just can't really party together. We're different. What then happens is that when you deal on a level of tohu, such intensity, kindness, chesed, will continue bringing itself hotter and hotter into the boiling point where its own vessel can no more sustain its own intensity. It will shatter. When strictness does the same thing. When strictness says, 
listen, kindness, there's no room for you in my life. I like you. I'm sure you have a job in this world. But in my life, you have no place. Then strictness brings itself to such an extreme boil and intensity of strictness where everything shatters. Thus you understand that the world is set up in a way where if strictness does not allow chesed into itself to help keep it balanced, and if chesed doesn't allow strictness into itself, vice versa, chesed into gvura, gvura into chesed, strictness into kindness, kindness into strictness, if we don't allow, allow ourselves in the relationship to absorb from the other, where the other truly becomes a piece of me, then we're going to bring ourselves to such a frenzy of intensity where we will self-destruct. There can be no existence of any pure, infinite existence. It, by definition, will get too intense for its own capacity. It will self-destruct. That is why Tohu shattered. Tohu had ten different pieces. And each one of them lived their own life, delving deeper and deeper into their own evolution until they shattered. Tikkun, which is the orderly world which in which, it, with, which in which we live, they understand the definition of compilation. In the world the way we know it, Tikkun, Every single one of the ten emanations is a compilation of all ten. Thus, when you touch any book of Sfirot, you'll be introduced to strictness of kindness, kindness of kindness, it goes on. So in kindness, you don't just have no more the pure, intense, boiling point of kindness. Kindness understands that there's strictness. So there's a kindness of kindness, there's a strictness of kindness. Strictness understands we need to understand kindness. So thus, it also allows itself to become kindness of strictness, strictness of strictness. Guys, let's just make sense out of this just quickly. All you know, a mother who loves her child and my child never does wrong, the kindness, intensity, you know what that kid grows up to be? Juvenile. So you understand that we cannot live in a world where I only treat my children with kindness. Or then you have the other one. I only treat my children with strictness. You can't have that. The individuals will shatter. Either way, you will be creating a self-destructive being. But that was Tohu. Tohu, because kindness was so pure and so infinite, it could not absorb strictness. It ended up shattering. Tikkun is not so. So now you understand a little bit the difference when we talk about kindness of kindness and strictness of strictness. I want to get a little deeper into a, in having a clear understanding of the difference between Tohu and Tikkun. The question on the table is, we now understand why Tohu shattered. We now understand why Tikkun prevailed. What we don't understand is, why couldn't Tohu acknowledge the importance of being a beautiful compilation of many rather than just be of myself. Okay? Tikkun was able to do that. Why? 
let's for a minute quickly jump back into why we're here discussing relationships. Let me ask you another question. The question of Tohu and Tikkun. In my relationship, can I only be me? Or can I also be you within me? In this relationship, will I only be me and only bring what I can bring to the table? You will bring only what you can bring to the table and the table puts us together. But you are you and I am I. I can't be you and you can't be I. Or is there a deeper dimension in a relationship which allows me to say that I am I, you are you, and we are so different. And yet, like in Tikkun, between kindness and strictness, we have a clear understanding that what we're going to have is kindness will need to absorb strictness and strictness will need to absorb kindness. So in a relationship, can I only be I and make some type of compromisal room for you? Or can I also learn to be you within me? The question of Toho and Tikkun. Guys, we're going to go to a story moment again, okay? Because the only way, the only way to understand what we spoke about, 1 plus 1 is 1, 1 plus 1 is 3, to unleash the infinite power in a relationship is only if we take the second, the latter form. Not only am I, I, and you, you, and now let's learn how to get along. But in the depth of a relationship, there needs to be a compilation. If you and I are soulmates and we're meant to be together, then somehow, even though you and I are so different, I need to learn how in my own life to incorporate the me of me and the you of me, within me. I want to tell you two stories. One's Schindler's List and one's Avram Avinu. In Schindler's List, there's an amazing scene. The, uh, huh? Okay. In Schindler's List, there's an amazing scene. The Jewish accountant who was creating the list, Schindler's List, he tells Schindler, we got to get that SS guy, officer, to stop just popping off people whenever he gets upset. And if you remember the scene, Schindler tells back to this guy, I'll talk to him. Let me see what we can do. You remember the conversation Schindler had with that SS officer? He tells him, the true definition of power is to be able to pardon. That's powerful. So while you as an SS officer only have the concept of power, that won't work. If you want to truly be powerful, you need to learn to pardon. He's listening. Interesting. The next scene, the young teenage Jewish boy who cleans in his house. He walks inside and he looks at the old bathtub and blows a casket. How come this Jewish cleaner did not bring it to the impossible polish? And you see the Jewish boy is shaking. He knows what awaits him. And all of a sudden, you see the SS officer step back and say, I pardon you. Let's go to the next scene. The boy is running across the sand field. In the background, off camera, you hear the SS officer's laughter. And then there's a gunshot and the child is killed. Tohu. Even if it tried, it could not embrace something which was different, in this case, to its own insane being. Now let's talk about Avramavino. 
a different story. Abraham, our forefather, he's told an interesting case. Avram Avinu is the absolute perfect embodiment of chesed, kindness. You remember what you did when you were in the, in the Hebrew school in kindergarten? We all came home with that beautiful tent with four doors because Abraham had four doors to his tent so they can come in from all sides, rest, wash up. This concept of chesed reaches an all high. Avram, the epitome of morality, is fighting with God to leave alone Saddam, the epitome of immorality. Avram's kindness goes so far. I don't just pray for those who I respect. He's praying for Saddam. Avram is the true embodiment of divine chesed. And then, all of a sudden, there's a new moment. The tenth test. Can we ask this ultimate man of kindness to perform the ultimate antithesis of who he is. To take his only child, born to him in his elder years, and sacrifice him, bring him as human sacrifice. Do you understand what we just did to Avram Avinu? We just asked the person who fought against human sacrifice was a living, walking, talking experience of chesed, kindness. Can he slaughter his own only son? And Avram Avinu passed the test until God, with the knife in his hand, told him, stop. See the difference? Tohu and Tikkun? Interesting. King David in the book of Psalms says that this tenth test is called the test of truth. Let me tell you more than that. Not only is this tenth test the test of truth, but our sages say upon that verse in Psalms that if God told Abraham, not an if, God told Abraham, please, please pass this test so that your previous test will have validity. Can you imagine that? His first nine tests, by the way, weren't exactly your local spelling bee. You remember he ended up in a furnace because he wouldn't bow to Nimrod as an idol. So God tells him, those nine will have zero validity if you can't pass this test. Now you know if uh, you all have children come home with test marks. If you get nine questions right and one wrong, you get a 90, not a zero. What's going on here? And the explanation commentaries give is, because if Abraham couldn't pass the test of paradox, then everything he did was about himself, not yet about opening up to an experience of the divine. Because the ultimate experience of the infinite encompassing divine power lies in the power of being able to be open to a paradox. Can Avram Isha Chesed, the man of kindness, the ultimate man of kindness, can he be pushed to say it's not about what I experience? It's not about my capacity. If a test is a relationship with God, then the question is whether I can enter into God's capacity. Can I leave go of my own definition of right and wrong? I spent 137 years 
teaching people that human sacrifice is wrong. And now, publicly, I'm being asked to do that by my God. It is only when Abraham was able to pass the test of paradox do we now know that everything Abraham did for God was not about me, my capacity, my enjoyment, my passion. Rather, it was all about being able to embrace divine capacity. So interesting enough, I'm going to share with you something that sounds very opposite of what most people would suggest. But when I think about the story of Abraham, you know, you know the movie called Sophia's Choice? I didn't watch it. I only heard about it, and that was enough for me. So, you understand what happens then, right? The moment after. So I wondered to myself, when Abraham and Isaac got off the altar, they're walking back home, what was the relationship? Conventional wisdom will tell you that Isaac will never forget that Abraham almost killed him. Conventional wisdom will tell you Abraham will never forget that God almost made him kill his son. Conventional wisdom will tell you that Abraham will need years of therapy to be able to embrace the fact that I actually had a knife to my son's neck. Let's not talk conventional wisdom. I'm going to share with you that I personally believe that the amazing, the amazing experience of paternal love when they walk together, because now it was no more about the human capacity. The fact that Isaac allowed, the fact that Abraham was in the moment, means that they now understand that their relationship is not limited by the human finite capacity of paternal love, as great as it may be. We now understand that from that moment on, Abraham was privy to living within the divine capacity of paternal love. Tohu and Tikkun. That's why in my notes, the caption of this section is called, Tohu is for singles, Tikkun is for couples. Singles don't understand Tikkun. Singles understand I am me, you are you, stay on your side of the room, and I'll stay on my side of the room, but we're going to be best friends, okay? I die for you. But I, you, I will die for you. But you stay you, I stay I. Marriage. Marriage opens up funny doors. Marriage allows for me not only to accept who my husband or wife is. Marriage needs to ask whether I can, a piece of me can become who my husband is, who my wife is. Let her into me so that I can become a greater individual of me. Thus, one plus one equals one, one plus one equals three. We making sense? Guys with me so far? Question on the table. Why can't Tohu do it? Why could Tikkun do it? Okay? Answer. It all lies in Chachma. What does Chachma mean? The Hebrew word of wisdom. Maria, if I come across a Hebrew word that I didn't translate, you stop me, okay? We're talking now about what? We're talking about Chachma, wisdom, which is the first of the ten emanations. It is the first of our human ten faculties, 
wisdom. Wisdom has two dimensions. Wisdom has a higher dimension and wisdom has a lower dimension. The higher dimension of wisdom is where the main part of the word Chachma is the second syllable. What is the second syllable of the word Chachma? Ma. What does the word Ma mean? What? Moses, according to Kabbalah, he is the perfect embodiment of wisdom. Because he's the one that brought us Torah, which is the wisdom of Hashem, God. When the Jews came to him, he said about himself and Aaron, V'nachnu ma, we are but what? That is the power of superior wisdom. Now put that thought for a moment aside. Let's talk about the lower level of wisdom. The lower experience of wisdom is where wisdom is an intellect. People understand, as much as intellect is humble compared to passion, passion is boisterous, emotions are loud, they're chaotic, there's entitlement, intellect is quiet, intellect is humble, but nevertheless, intellect depends upon the concept of being a yesh, a something. Intellect is defined by its boundaries. Wisdom is wisdom and not understanding. Understanding is understanding and not wisdom. Wisdom and understanding are intellects, not emotions. There is the capacity of an intellect. Not only that, number one, on your way into intellect, you need to be a somebody. You ever see how someone poises himself for an intellectual pursuit? He doesn't sit like this, rolls up his sleeves, he gets into it. He needs to be conscious of his capacity. Okay, let's figure this out. You cannot, you cannot pursue intellectualism when you have the absolute humility of self-abnegation. You've probably heard from your kids, Mom, I'm stupid, I can't do this. Self-fulfilling prophecy. You can't do something when you see yourself as a nobody. What's the outcome of a real good class? You learned it, you understood it, what's the outcome? It isn't humility. It's actually, wow, I got it. So intellect on the way in and on the way out demands for you to acknowledge humble somebody, but I'm a somebody. I know I can do this. I understand this. It comes from something. It goes to something. Now let's talk about superior wisdom. And I want to just preface this by saying, when the top of your ten emanations is a somebody, then you understand the experience of the entire ten emanations is one of slight ego. I'm a somebody. I am kindness. And who are you, ma'am? I'm strictness. Pleased to meet you. We won't be doing much business together. Because if wisdom, the very birth, conception of your entire infrastructure is all about I am a somebody and I need to know that I am what I am, important words, and I am not what I am not. I can get along with you, I can respect you, but I am what I am, I am not what I'm not, and you and I are not the same. That is the birthplace of Tohu. That's the birthplace of bachelors that never get married. Now let's talk about the latter type of wisdom, superior wisdom. In the world of Kabbalah, superior wisdom is not defined as an intellect. Do you know what it's defined as? 
vision. Koach hari'iya, to see. Now let's quickly, we're moving along, time's ticking here. Let's talk about what is vision. Vision is all about being able to see out of the box. Vision is all about being able to see beyond the horizon. Vision is all about being able to stand up contrary to conventional wisdom. Vision is the power of being able to see I am not what I see myself to be. I am not only what I think I am. That's the power of vision. And therefore the power of vision mandates for you to leave go of my own, no, I can't do that. I, you don't understand. I'm just not that type of person. There's no power for vision. If your famous line is, I can't do that. That's not for me. I know other people do it. It must be great. It's just not for me. You've slammed shut the power of vision. So superior wisdom on the way in is all about ma. What? I don't have an answer. I don't have a projected answer. I'm open. Hashem, you tell me. Ma, what do we do? Being open to any answer. What is the way out of superior wisdom? When you have a real vision, an out-of-the-box vision, the last thing you feel is arrogant and ego. You sit there in the beautiful awe of Wow, Hashem. So when you have inferior wisdom, it's about I. Bright kid, but I. I am what I am, I am not what I'm not. When you have superior wisdom, that's when you become completely open. All of a sudden, whatever Hashem, you tell me, where do you want me, what do you want me to do? I never did that before, but if you want me to do that, let's do it. Superior wisdom is vision, not intellect. So let's sum it up now. So the problem with Tohu was that Tohu only experienced the lower level of wisdom. I am what I am and I'll try to get along with you the best I can. But you're you, I'm I, and let's make this work. Let's make it work for the kids. Let's make it work because we, we should get married. The power of superior wisdom Koach ma, what? The power of superior wisdom says, I am open to any experience. Have you ever noticed, by the way, in brief, have you ever noticed two types of people that have a conversation? One is so busy telling you who he is, and one is so interested in hearing who you are. Two types of wisdoms. One really wants to know. What I know, I know. But I want to be also what I don't know. Tell me. Share me with me your gifts. The other one's just telling you what he does or doesn't do. This is my gifts. Can we work together or not? Thus, Tohu was on a one-way hill. Each part of Tohu was so beautiful, so amazing, so intense. But it had no power of balance. Kindness had no strictness to say, whoa, 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 you're ruining that child. Stop, you're destroying him. Or vice versa. So Tohu shattered. Tikkun. Tikkun said, 
Okay, this is how I handle things. Honey, tell me. Tell me about you. What's your opinion? How do you deal with this? Tell me what you're feeling. How do you see this? How do we see this so opposite? And allow that to really, really become you. Thus you understand the difference between Toho and Tikkun. Guys, the Kabbalah class is over. Now let's, in two short minutes, go back to relationships. Let me recap to you what we just learned here, okay? What have we learned until now? Number one. We now understand that what we need to bring out in the best of each other is the equation of 1 plus 1 equals 1 and 1 plus 1 equals 3. They're one and the same. Number two. We also know that the only way to do this is by each one in the equation allowing the other one in the equation to become a part of within themselves. It is all about the compilation of dichotomies. You are so different than me. I am so different than you. When we allow ourselves to also be the other within ourselves, then we are elevated to the infinite experience of the paradox. Say that again. The beauty of a relationship. To be able to experience the infinite experience of the paradox. My friends, this is when and how our spouse bring the best out of us. When my spouse can give me them and I can absorb that, now I'm having the best of me. Let's go further. Number three, the only way to be able to allow ourselves to become compiled of myself and my antithesis of a spouse is by climbing into the superior wisdom. In bold, the only way to do this is through humility, which breeds openness to living the paradox. Guys, are you on the same page? Because we're about to make the final analysis. You guys are understanding where I'm going with this? <laughs> no, yes, no, no. Just a look, okay. Guys, what I'm trying to say, because really it's time to bring this shit back in. What I'm trying to say is that the worst relationship you can have is Tohu. I am me, you are you. That's all there is to it. We love each other, we care for each other, we share everything. But I really cannot become you. And you cannot become me. The beautiful, perfect relationship is Tikkun. Where I am me. But I understand that as soulmates, within me, not you, within me, I will now embrace, embrace that a part of you has now become me. I now don't just listen to what you say. I understand what you're saying. I know what you're feeling. Because I have embraced your gift of personality, of infrastructure, of how you see things, how you feel things. Thus, ultimately speaking, as a spouse, you become two people in one. You become a paradox. I am me, and also now, after 18 years, there's a piece of you in me. Part of me has become you. I now know how to look at things two ways. You ever heard a husband tell you? I know exactly what my wife's going to say about that. But I'm not talking about, I know what my wife's going to say about that. When I go to buy something for my wife, when I look at it, I want to in myself personally experience her reaction because there's no more her after 18 years of marriage. That's got to be me too. 
So it's not just, well, I like this, but I know my wife would like that. There's got to be a part of me that also likes that now. Because that's the beauty of a relationship. That's how you bring the best out of me. By allowing me to live a paradox. Not just me, but now I'm much more powerful. I'm a paradox. I'm me and I'm you. That's what it means to bring the best out of each other. So guys, the final analysis. What was the challenge of Tohu? The challenge of Tohu wasn't whether I am willing to give you my gift. That wasn't the challenge. You guys heard that the challenge of Tohu was, am I willing to allow your gift to me to become part of me? Follow the difference? So when you ask the question, can you, does my significant other, do you bring the best out of me? We can ask that question on three levels. Let's go for it. We can ask the question number one. Do you bring the best out of me? Why am I still in this relationship? Question number one. But there's another question too, right? Do I bring the best out of you? That sounds a little bit more idealistic. I'm going to tell you no. Today's class is not about whether you bring the best out of your partner. Because I believe that's the lower challenge of a relationship. I will tell you clearly that in my marriage, I much quicker will be able to let Rivka be happy. I will be able to take her to her special places far quicker than I will allow her to take me to my special places. So please understand the focus of this lecture is contrary to what you probably thought when you read my title. The question on the table for your sake of doing what you need to do in a marriage is not whether I bring the best out of him. I should hope that that question goes through your head. I want to take you to the next level. Does he bring the best out of me? And that's divided into two parts. A, does he do what he has to do to bring the best out of me? Smaller question. Big question, guys. Do I allow him to bring the best out of me? That's the question of today's lecture. That's what really needs superior wisdom. I know how to make my wife happy. I know when she tries and doesn't try to make me happy. But the one question I don't like facing is, do I allow her to bring the best out of me? Guys, how many of you know that when your husband's in a frustrated mood, they don't want you to try to make them feel better? Honey, just give me my space, okay? Was that what marriage is all about? You go into your corner, I go into my corner, let's cry, and then we'll come back together and have dinner? Where's that coming from? That's the challenge of Tohu. The challenge of Tohu is not whether I can make my wife feel good. I'm good at that. My question is not whether she's working to make me feel good. She's good at that. The challenge on the table is, am I okay with taking her in me to allow her to bring the best out of me? Thus, I want to share with you that this is the real challenge. Not about giving gifts, but being open to allow your real soulmate to give you gifts and then to take the gift they planted within you and allow it to become you. 
Stop telling me how we're so different. That's the power of paradox. That's why you're both married. So ask yourself the big question. Do I allow my spouse to bring the best out of me? Guys, this is the true ta challenge. This takes superior wisdom. This takes true humility. In closing, I'm going to read it to you. Some questions to take home, guys. I want you to leave this lecture with one focus only. Do I let my partner bring the best out of me? Hear the question again and again. Don't translate it. Don't reword it. Hear the question. Do I let my partner bring the best out of me? So here are some questions for us to ask of ourselves. Number one. Guys, this isn't fun questions, but let's do it. Have I trusted him and taken the time to teach him how to lift me up, calm me down, melt my anxieties away, and make me feel omnipotently whole? Guys, I'm going to torture you. I'm going to read it again. Have I trusted him and taken the time to teach him how to lift me up, calm me down, melt my anxieties away, and make me feel omnipotently whole? The challenge of Tohu, being willing to accept. Question number two, why not? That was an assumption. Sorry, guys. Question number three, have I put him, please listen to this question, have I put him on a trial stand and found him guilty and undeserving to be able to do that for me? We're going to read that question again. Have I put him on a trial stand and found him guilty and undeserving to be able to do that for me? I just don't trust him. What and how should I be teaching him about myself? We're in the repeat mode, okay? What and how should I be teaching him about myself? Question number two gets tougher. How can I teach myself to allow myself to do that? The challenge of today's lecture. How can I teach myself to allow myself to do that? Closing question. How can I then allow that the gifts he plants within me should become part of me? I'm going to say that again. That is where Tohu and Tikkun differ. That is why Tohu shattered and that is why Tikkun prevails. This is the question of the entire lecture. When I talk about do you bring the best out of me, this is the question. How can I then allow that the gifts he plants within me should become part of me? People, I took you through a journey. I took you through a journey of the difference between Tohu and Tikkun. Understand Tohu is a single man's life. Tikkun is a married man's life. I'm saying man, I'm a man. I mean both, man and women. Okay? Tohu says, why do we need to get married, honey? Listen, you know, people get married and the relationship goes downhill. Let's just, you know, you, you, me, me, don't change your last name. It'll probably be a prob problem for you anyway at work. So just you stay you and I stay me and let's get along. Let's get along. We like each other. That's Tohu. Kindness is kindness. Strictness is strictness. I understand you. I understand why you need to be you, but I need to be me. And I'm not becoming no strictness of kindness. I am kindness. Kindness, 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 and kindness. That's all. I like the feeling of the intensity of when I'm totally myself. I don't like incorporating you in me. But it doesn't mean we can't get along. That's Tohu. 
You'll never have a relationship where the other brings the best out of you. Tikkun has a higher understanding of wisdom. It understands that ultimately speaking, who am I? You know who I am? One question. What? That's all I am. You heard Moses say that. V'anachnu, and we are but. Ma, what? Stop, busy, stop being so busy telling your spouse who you are so they should know you. The beauty of Tohu is that I, in a marriage, know who I am, know who she is, and after 18 years of grinding, we both have come to a superior wisdom, which is the house of true humility, where I don't need to be just me. I've allowed her to bring the best out of me. I've allowed her to take me to the world of the paradox. I am me and I am you, and we're both so different. Thank you for taking me to somewhere I could never be by myself. So the question, in your relationship, does he bring the best out of me? You now know how to hear that question. Do I allow him to bring the best out of me? Guys, good luck with your relationships.